Temporary was produced on the lands of the Bijigal, Gadigal, Nungar, Warujuri, and Karuna peoples whose sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and those who are yet to emerge. When asylum seekers who arrive by boat are unsuccessful in their claim for refugee status, the system seldom gives them a second chance. People in the legacy caseload have spent years waiting for an answer. So what happens when the answer is no? For UNSW and Guardian Australia, I am Sison Kim Simang, and this is Temporary. My village was a very beautiful place and everyone was nice. I mean, life in the village is different compared to life in the city. This is Arman. Everyone knows each other. Everyone is kind of connected to each other. Arman is Hazara. And just like Zaki, who we heard from in an earlier episode, he had a pretty idyllic childhood. Everyone gets together and they had so much fun. He played soccer. I used to play soccer with my neighbors and, you know, kids uh, from my neighborhood. He hung out with his dad, who was a pharmacist. I used to go help my dad sometimes, not as a professional, but just go there because uh, just to learn what is going on, just to see. Things were okay. But as he grew up, things in Afghanistan were changing. It's the sickeningly bloodied, sadly familiar evidence of the latest violence in Afghanistan. 2013 was a particularly bloody year. A string of bombings claimed the lives of some 130 people in January. Every day you scare, every day, you know, torturing, you hearing about torturing. The violence was the worst of the year in Kabul. Because Hazara people are a very visible minority, Arman's family knew that the remote village would not be free from the violence of the Taliban. They're all focusing on killing Hazara in Afghanistan. It follows a spate of other attacks throughout Afghanistan lately by both ISIS and the Taliban. This is one of three in one day last month that killed 15 and wounded 47. They had no choice. They, they wanted to be safe. They didn't want to die. They just wanted to go someplace where they can, they can live their life. And that's why my uh, parents decided to leave the area, so we can have a better future. They did everything they could, and they got him out. It was also my dream just to go somewhere, just to, you know, having a peaceful and nice life. Arman had to leave his family behind. And when he was just 15 years old, he crossed an ocean all alone in search of a safe and better future, only to be stopped and detained on Christmas Island. I was, I was there for about three to four months. Arman was just a kid, but he wasn't being treated like one. Yeah, I was about 14 to 15, yes. Now I was alone. Most kids in Australia have structure in their life. They have school, they have homework, they have after-school activities, and they have people looking out for them. Arman was alone, and he was left to wait. At the beginning, I wasn't doing anything, but after, I mean, after two, one month, I was just going, sitting outside, coming back to the room. Arman was eventually moved into community detention, 
But that lack of structure, the lack of familiarity, that remained. I mean, when I came to Australia, I didn't even know like there's Sydney is a city, Melbourne is another major city in Australia. And I was just, you know, it's just a, it's just a country where we can just go and leave. So Arman is no longer forced to check over his shoulder in fear of the Taliban. But he still needs to prove to the Department of Home Affairs that he is in need of protection. So the first time myself and Aman met was, in fact, at RACS. This is Sarah Dale, the director of RACS, the Refugee Advice and Casework Service. We were running an information session for a number of unaccompanied children that were in community detention. Sarah knows more than anyone that making a valid claim for asylum is really hard, especially for kids like Arman. We had figured out that working with young people, they were going to need more time to one, get their story out, but two, trust us. So Sarah does what she does, and she helps Arman to begin to make his claim for protection. The Department of Home Affairs uh, invite you to attend an interview. A process that starts with what, for you and me, would be a fairly simple question. Who are you? That interview has two purposes. The first purpose, to establish who you are and if you say you are who you say you are. But proving who you are is not as easy as you might think. So case officers are there to examine your identity documents, the evidence you have to establish you are yourself. Seemingly straightforward details like when and where you were born are vastly important to your claim. Particularly for unaccompanied children, dates are used as a way of testing a person's credibility. They are also not something that the department takes on faith. And so to get those dates wrong or to misunderstand can be quite a serious problem in a person's case. I saw the interview... The guy was asking me about my date of birth for one, two hours. If you're able to establish who you are and you have evidence to establish where you were born or who your father is or places you've been, if you can establish that evidence, that's used towards an assessment of your credibility. Because if you can prove who you are, then I should be able to believe what you say. I should be able to believe what you've been through. The immigration officer was... uh just keep telling me why did you, how does this birthday work? What did you do to this birthday? I said, I didn't do anything to this birthday. I mean, what could I do to this birthday? I mean, this is not a reason, it's not even a reasonable question. Doubt can be seeded by something as simple as not having a birth certificate. Like, I was, I was not born in hospital. I was born at home in a traditional way. I was not born, at, I don't have any birth certificate from hospital. All of these little things are hugely important when it comes to making a valid claim for asylum. Uh, You can't necessarily give evidence that the Taliban captured you and you escaped. You know, the Taliban doesn't stamp your passport to say, I've released you, for instance. But if a person can say, you know, I'm a man, here's my birth certificate, then it's more likely that that person is going to be believed in their in their claim sense, because they've been able to prove and meet the other burdens of proof that's been required of them. Getting your dates right is just one part of making a successful claim for asylum. And it's not just that. That was just an example of what was going on. 
You also have to prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the country you fled from is unsafe for you to return to. Generally speaking, the interview, as I said, is for two purposes, establishing identity and establishing your claims, both of which you need to provide a mountain of evidence in order for the officer to be satisfied. And while it's crystal clear to Arman that his life in Afghanistan was at risk, and there are even news reports about the dangers of living there, Arman can't exactly ask the police in his village to fax him the details of Taliban activity in the days that he fled. It's difficult to prove that you went through countries without documentation. It's difficult to prove that someone came to your house and threatened your father who's now passed away. All those things you don't have evidence for. Okay, but how do they determine that? Like, how do they decide what country is and what country isn't safe? DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, prepare these country information briefs which outline the situation in a given country from which someone is seeking asylum. That information is pulled together from diplomats, from international organisations, from journalists on the ground in these countries. This is Ben Doherty. He covered immigration for Guardian Australia. I've previously done briefings for Australian assessors talking about what is happening on the ground in some of the countries I've reported on. And it is this information that assessors use in interviews with those seeking asylum to put to them adverse information about their claim, essentially to poke holes in their claim for protection. So usually at a Department of Home Affairs interview, country information is put to you which is adverse to what you've been saying. So it's in those interviews that officers say, I put to you that you could return to a place such as Kabul. I put to you that you could return to a place such as Mazar Sharif. They ask me, obviously you can't go back to your village because it's surrounded by Taliban. You can't go there, and but you could live in uh, in other area of Afghanistan. So the department decided that there was somewhere safe in Afghanistan for Oman to return to. Often, these country information briefs can say it's safe for asylum seekers to return to their home country, as long as they return to a different city. And of course, it it came up that it was Mazar Sharif. It was uh, Mazar Sharif. It is just. Uh, other side of Afghanistan. Which we've now seen in later years that DFAT have found is not a safe location for people to return to. But you need to remember that this information dates pretty quickly and what might have been right six months ago isn't right anymore. The situation in Afghanistan changes very quickly. The Taliban can recede during the winter and come back in the summertime. Uh, Roads that were once safe to travel are no longer safe. And it's very hard from the other side of the world to keep up with exactly what's happening on the ground. You know, I just said to them, anywhere I go, I'll have the same situation. That, that's the city where there's no Hazara even lives there. At the time Oman was assessed, Kabul was also assessed as a place in which many Hazara people could return. DFAT's information today is that is not the case, that there are targeted attacks against Hazaras in Kabul. And even Kabul is the safest place. Still, there's people, you know, Hazara people, they're struggling to leave there. They can't leave there. So Arman tells them, it's not safe for me to go back. I can't tell if they did believe me or not. In the end, the Department of Home Affairs determined that Arman did not have a valid claim to asylum. Immigration decided that, you know, block the other city of Afghanistan is safe for you, so you can go there. 
<laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not agree with them, obviously. It's an eternal frustration for me that we can sit in front of a person who says, this happened to me and that happened to me and my family was affected in this way. And an officer that has lived in Australia their whole life, that has known nothing but security and safety, can turn to that person and say, I don't believe you. So this process, it has never been easy. And over time, the government has made it harder and harder for people seeking asylum. Thousands of asylum seekers who arrived by boat under the former federal Labor government remain in limbo. Asylum seeker advocates claim the process, known as fast-tracking, is unfair. The fast-track application process came into law in 2014. It was part of a bundle of changes that the coalition government brought in to speed up the process of what they called the legacy caseload. But the only fast thing about Fast Track is the requirement on applicants to respond. Tens of thousands of asylum seekers are locked in legal limbo because only a handful of reviews have been completed by the government body set up to fast track refugee assessments. So for me, fast track processing has just resulted in a deprivation of rights for people seeking asylum. So what exactly has changed under this new fast track system? Effectively, it means asylum seekers get one chance, and one chance only, to make their claim for asylum. Fast track ultimately means that people have lost their rights to complete merits review. Before fast track, if someone like Armand had their claim denied, they would have the chance to appeal that decision. You were interviewed again, you could provide new material, you could provide submissions. It was a process from the beginning, a fresh assessment. But under Fast Track, asylum seekers don't get that second chance. Their case is referred to what's known as the Immigration Assessment Authority, the IAA, and that's an on-the-papers assessment. The new way to appeal a decision is incredibly and I would argue dangerously narrow. You can't provide any new or additional information that wasn't otherwise before the department unless there are exceptional circumstances. So what about Armand? Does he have access to this full merits review, this appeals process? No, he does not. Because Armand arrived in Australia by boat... Uh, And between 13 August 2012 and 31 December 2014, which means he's subject to fast-track processing. That means he's had his rights to complete merits review curtailed. It means he's only eligible for temporary protection visas. And it means that his access to government support whilst in Australia is significantly limited. And as I said earlier, things in Afghanistan change very quickly, very unpredictably. After 2011, especially after 2015, things get even worse. Just last month, a suicide bomber targeted a market frequented by Hazaras, killing 21. I have um, a video from a couple of days ago. There was a, a Hazara wedding. From a wedding hall to hospital. The person went and killed all the people in the wedding, including bride and groom. Suicide bomber struck during a wedding. In and it's just terrible. That's what they're doing to people. And so we find ourselves in this extraordinary situation where the appeals tribunal knows that the information it's working on is out of date and is incorrect. 
but it still has to rely on that old information despite the fact it knows it has new information that says that it's not safe for somebody to be sent back there. Why would they keep it so static? Is there a reason why they're not allowed to change the information? The argument for that is that that's the way Fast Track is designed to work so that it's streamlined and works more quickly. So the idea is that if you were able to constantly change information, that would slow the bureaucracy down because you'd be making um, concessions for everyone who wants to add this piece of paper or that piece of paper. That's the, that's the theory. That's the rationale. That's, that's why it's put into place. The result of that, though, is you have situations where appeals tribunals are making decisions knowing they're using the wrong information and potentially sending someone back to harm. Since Arman arrived in Australia, as much as he has tried to live a normal life, he's always on edge, never knowing when his worst fear will pop up in his inbox. And during this appeals process, things were no different. Sarah and Arman waited by their phones, hoping to get some good news. So I do remember the, the afternoon that I got the email from the Immigration Assessment Authority and you see it come up in your inbox and you see there are two attachments in the email and your heart just sinks, but you've also in a flurry because maybe that decision's been overturned. You open the PDF document and you scan down half the page to see what the decision is. And there it was that the IAA had affirmed the decision of the Department of Home Affairs. What she's saying, is Armand's appeal was unsuccessful. I remember just my heart sinking. I had known Armand for such a long time. I had seen him through high school. I had seen him grow up. And to know that there was this PDF in my inbox that was effectively going to break his heart and ruin his life was deeply devastating. So what's next for Armand? Could he take his case to court? Aman can take his case to court, but his chances there get even smaller. Uh, that's particularly clear at Judicial Review, where we see a really low success rate. Just like in his first appeal, Aman cannot provide the court with any new information about the dangers he faces back home. So even though he has that video clip of the Taliban bombing a Hazara wedding, he can't use that. The fact that the Australian government now says that Afghanistan is not a safe place to be, that doesn't count either. They're looking at the error that which is made by law. And this is not they're not checking look what is actually going on in Afghanistan. It's purely an examination of were all the steps followed in a process that we think is flawed. I mean, that, that's the rule, that's how they do, but that's not reasonable. They're not, they're not going to look what is going on in Afghanistan at the moment, what people going through, what Hazara people going through in Afghanistan. They're just looking at during the, what, what is happening during the interview. Did this guy make any error according to the law? And as you would imagine, going to court is really expensive. It's not something that someone like Arman can easily afford. The court cost ten to 15000 And I can't obviously afford to pay. I'm struggling just to, to pay more rent and bills in here. So he thought about it and he talked to Sarah about it. But in the end, he decided it just wasn't worth it. For someone like Arman, that's an incredibly big decision and one that many decide not to go through or do go through and then find out that they've got a really low chance of success and then ultimately withdraw. And that's why we end up with people like Aman having to rely on ministerial intervention. 
there is a final chance for Oman to stay, and that's ministerial intervention. You're basically applying for minister to review your application. That's probably the only option I have. That process is you write to the Minister of Immigration and ultimately ask the Minister to personally intervene in your case, allowing you to make a fresh application for protection or the Minister, if willing, could also intervene and grant you a visa outright. The Minister has extraordinary powers to intervene. He can intervene for almost any reason at all. The problem is, the minister reviewing these letters is Peter Dutton, and he has made his views on asylum seekers very clear. Well, for many people, uh, they won't be, uh, uh, you know, numerate or literate in their own language, let alone English. And these people would be taking Australian jobs, there's no question about that. And for many of them that would be unemployed, they would languish... uh, uh, When people come to us and their only option is ministerial intervention, I'm honestly looking at them across the table and telling them, you've got a million to one chance of this being successful. In my time at RACS, I've I've not seen the minister intervene and grant a visa. Perhaps if Armand was an au pair or knew someone who knew Peter Dutton, his chances might be improved. Late last year, there was a Senate inquiry into ministerial intervention powers and the evidence was overwhelming that whilst the minister was happy to intervene in cases of nannies and AFL players, uh, refugees and people seeking asylum did not have nearly the same rate of intervention or nearly the same success in seeking the minister's personal powers. As a solicitor working in this space, I know that there is the law and the policy there for the minister to intervene in these cases. And I know that one day a minister will act compassionately. So what happens if the ministerial review is unsuccessful? He could be sent back to detention. It could get to a point where you've been waiting for so long that status resolution determined that you're no longer eligible for a bridging visa, in which case you become unlawful. Uh, in which case you don't have a visa to be in the community and you can be detained. Ultimately, people end up in detention centres, some for weeks, some for months, some for years, whilst the government makes steps to try and remove you. If Afghanistan say, we have no record of Aman, we're not taking him, he ultimately faces indefinite detention for who knows how long. But there is also a very real chance that he will be forced to go home, forced to return to the country he fled. So if someone like Arman is sent back, is Australia at all responsible for their safety? We do know of situations where people have been forcibly returned to their home countries and have faced extreme persecution to the point of being killed. A few years ago, I went to Afghanistan and met with asylum seekers who had been on the Tampa but were then forced to return to Afghanistan. Many of them were still living effectively in hiding. Some of them had been attacked by the Taliban and I met with family members of men who'd been returned to Afghanistan and then killed. There was no consequence for Australia, none at all. Nobody is arguing Australia can't have a system to assess who needs protection and who doesn't. If you can't reject someone, then you don't really have a system at all. But what we're seeing here and what we're hearing over and over again 
is this is a system that simply doesn't work, that isn't fair. The deck is stacked against people like Arman, and he has almost no chance of making a proper claim and finding the safety he so clearly needs. If it was safe to go, I would I would love to go back. I don't want to, you know, just to suffer this much. Arman is really stuck. After this ministerial intervention, there are no more safety nets. In spite of living on back-to-back bridging visas, he's built a life here. He has a girlfriend, a share house, a job, and he's received a scholarship to do a degree. Any day, Armand could get a call or an email that will change his life. And until then, he lives his life in Sydney day by day, minute by minute, because it's unclear just how much longer he has left. I respect Australia, I mean, more than my country. I can do anything, I mean, I can do anything for this country because this country gives me a lot of things that my, my own country didn't give me. I'm just doing everything as you do, basically. But the thing is, I don't want to leave under pressure just to, just to leave here. Wherever I go, I just want to have a peaceful life. Temporary is hosted by me, Sasankim Simang, and produced by Kara Jensen McKinnon and Miles Herbert, with editorial support from Lauren Martin and Miles Martignoni. Original music composed by Lama Zaharia, mixed and mastered by Ryan Pemberton, with series artwork by Matt Wynn. Temporary is a project from the UNSW Center for Ideas and Caldor Center for International Refugee Law, co-produced with Guardian Australia and inspired by the book Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs by Jane McAdam and Fiona Chong. The podcast is accompanied by a digital storytelling project which further explores the lives of the people interviewed in this series and is linked in the show notes. this story has raised any issues for you, please know that help is available. Contact Lifeline on 131114.